Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. As it's over two years since we launched FuturePod, we thought it would be interesting to check in with our previous guests and see how their work and their thinking may have changed since we last spoke to them. So we have created a new FuturePod series called The Re-Interviews. Today, we are re-interviewing Marcus Bussey. We originally interviewed Marcus in podcast 16 called Disturber of the Peace. And in that podcast, Marcus explains how he shows people their body wisdom and also how we need to bring a critical stance to culture. It's a deep and wise thought journey and it's also the only podcast to incorporate poetry reading. It's a must listen. Welcome back to FuturePod, Marcus. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here again. Yeah, it's great to be talking again from lockdown. <laughs> so what new things have you learned since we last spoke and what are you working on now? It's a great question, actually. I, I think I, I have problems with the word learn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether I get any wiser as I get older at all. In fact, <laughs> I think I, I start to cherish my ignorances more than, than anything else. I've been on an interesting journey since we spoke because I ended up taking on a leadership role at the university for quite some time, which I've happily now stepped out of. In the leadership role, I learned something about having to hold my own authority and having to keep a, a, an eye out in a very pragmatic way regarding our futures practices and so on. But I also found that the role didn't sit well with me. Now, not simply because I'm not particularly interested in being a leader, but because I think the kind of models for leadership, you know, are failing us and the, and the kind of expectations on leading also doing, I think, the future a disservice. There are obviously some great leaders out there, but I think much of the time leadership's been confused with managerialism and, and so on. Is that about the way that you think the institution and the people wish to be led doesn't agree with your values, or do you think it is we actually don't know how to lead institutions and people? It's actually a mixture of both. I felt myself being socialised by, uh, by the expectations of my colleagues, and that was an interesting experience, you know, that there were pressures on me to be a certain kind of leader, mm. to offer... I guess, uh, to, to tell them what to do. They actually, people didn't want to take <laughs> their own responsibility and carry their own bag. And of course, I'm simplifying it, but there was definitely that sense that, you know, people look to leaders to actually take the heat uh, and, and also take some level of responsibility off them. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the first things I did when I got, took on this role was I went and got a tattoo on my back so that I could sit there and think, well, you know, I'm actually declaring my independence because it was a tattoo to do with shamanism. And I thought, well, I want something that totally debunks the, the image of, <laughs> of what, you know, what a, it would be expected of a, a, a managerialist slash leader. So I did that and I didn't tell anybody. Actually, this is the first time I'm talking about it in any kind of public space at all. 
And I'm thinking, why did that come out of my mouth? Because it was... <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to subvert some kind of, yeah, at the body level, you know that I'm into body wisdom, Yeah. into the actual embodiment of what it means to be the kind of future agent or futures agent that uh, is meaningful. Mm. For me, that was a, a kind of subversive act. And then, you know, I started going around and meeting people individually, you know, asking them what they thought and trying to get a sense of how to offer the the kind of skill sets that I have, but in a, in a way that took us all together in a, as a community. Uh, I also rushed off and got myself Dare to Lead, which is uh, Brene Brown's book, just because I thought, well, let's have a listen to what she's how she found, and, and I actually learned you know some really interesting insights there, mm. mainly things that reassured me. So that I, I also did that. So I looked around and, of course, I, I thought, well, about who are the people that I've admired as leaders and how have they led? So I ended up, you know, having to do what people do in institutions, which is run meetings and so on, but they were collegial. There was a, they were non-hierarchical and they were geared around questions and, I guess, empowerment processes uh, which related to disciplinary skill sets in some cases, or just in terms of listening and, and, and enabling, uh, I guess, the, I, the, the I'm being heard by this person kind of process. Mm. And my future stuff sat there in that kind of nurturing cradle of intentionality. I believe in the future, you know, and, I, and people understood that I cared and that, you know, when there were problems, at the kind of small micro level, the major problems that faces my institution and I think institutions, you know, across the planet at the moment is a, a bankruptcy of imagination and, and so on. And this kind of crazy compulsion to keep on doing what doesn't work even harder. <laughs> Doubling down, I think is the term. Doubling down, that's right. Ratchet up, ratchet up. If, if it doesn't work, we'll keep doing it, but we'll do it better. So it didn't lead to cynicism in me, though, interestingly enough, but it, it led to a kind of almost a world weariness in, in some respects because I could just see that I could actually help people and that mattered and it made a big difference. And certainly my immediate boss was in the same position. He, he was there to help people and to bring a sort of human process or a humanity to, uh, to what we were doing. And I think that made, you know, for the two and a half years I was in that position, it made a difference. It's not that that's gone now that I've stepped out of it, but certainly there is a, a, a quite a different flavour to what's happening now in, in my school at the uni and so on. Uh, so that was, I think that was a very interesting interlude for me because it's given me a, a new frame. And what I found in my own practice was that it was much of this thinking got filtered through and processed in my work with my uh, doctoral students and also in the work with my undergraduate students, which gives me a, a kind of rich and fertile ground in which to work my futures praxis, which is built around critical questioning and critical pedagogy. Nothing has changed there from our last conversation. But uh, what has been happening is that since stepping out of that position, which is now from basically the entirety of this year, I've been doing a lot of listening again, listening in different ways, though, and coming across some quite remarkable and very much affirming 
thinking from a wide range of scholars from a wide range of fields. Not and scholars, I'm using in a very loose term too. I'm not talking about you know people who read Foucault and stuff, which of course is cool. But no, I'm talking about people who are actually practicing life and reflecting on it mm. critically, but also looking at uh, developing new t- new language, new tools, a bit like the poetry uh, that was uh, that we were playing with last time we spoke, and and joining in collaborative efforts around. You know, some of them are directly poetic, but also working on a range of conversations. And these conversations are happening, uh, interestingly, now at the, in the APF where there's uh, a broadening of that conversational basis. Mm. I uh, worked with uh, Sherman Cruz and, and Laura Hajo recently on an Indigenous Futurity uh, session that the APF held, for instance. And listening to Laura's work and working with her and, and listening to the conversations that were spawned in that short interview with her and with a a range of panellists who were all speaking from their own positions within uh, quite different and diverse cultures, you know, it starts giving me a sense of hope that the conversations that matter really don't take place in places like my institution. (laughs) Yeah. At university you go, oh, my God. Um, So, But they're not taking place there. They're actually taking places in other spaces. And those other spaces are what are interesting me more and more as I, I guess I, I'm moving into a, another phase of, of life. I think I certainly feel like I am. I'm going on long service leave uh, first half of next year. Never having had a long service leave, I'm thinking, well, that's going to be an interesting thing just in itself. But, you know, I, I have goals there. I'm really interested in into looking into these other spaces and I guess looking in some of the ideas that I've sowed in the past, intimate futures, you know, poetics, anticipatory aesthetics, these ideas that have been swirling around in my head and uh, popping up in my writing and and, uh, in different forms, I'm going to actually sit with those ideas and see, I guess, what emerges. Yeah. So it's, it's very much a preparatory stage I'm in now. So this conversation helps me just sort of in setting my own stage, I guess. One question I have, because it's it's one I have and I ask myself and a lot of the people around me, is mm. that, I mean, we are wrestling with an external set of you know, challenges that yeah. are difficult, wicked, <laughs> mm-hmm. whatever you want to say. Yeah. And we have around us the formal institutions that we know are struggling. They know they're struggling and everybody knows they're struggling. So, And, you know, we're seeing worldwide people losing what they say respect in institutions. At the same time, I think you're also sensing, as I am, that people are, if not going back to old ideas, but, but also searching for different ways of engaging, dialoguing, critiquing, mm-hmm. maybe even, I'm not going to say solving problems, but at least appreciating problems. So, that, so we've kind of got that kind of dynamic going on. Mm-hmm. As you say, the, I won't say fraudulent, but kind of empty ritual of institutions mm-hmm. and people practicing the best they can to sort of engage with issues. But my question for you, Marcus, is do you think our deep methods of engagement and inquiry necessary and the best we can do. Do you think that is enough or do you think we have to go further Mm. in order to really deal with the challenges we face? We do need to go further. I think we're being, you could say, being invited 
with a very strong hand on our back to, to enter <laughs> uh, into conversations, into new rooms, into new configurations where that appreciative inquiry type element that you pointed to is part of emergent reconfigurations around language, which is conceptual, and, and, but also around, I think, presencing. I think one of the things that we've learned through COVID is some kind of, and, you, and, I, and there's no real, what would it be? There, there's no real kind of word for nailing this down, but something about presencing. To me, there's a soulful futures dimension, which is emerging as we appreciate loss we appreciate possibility in the in the shadow of loss and also that we appreciate that there is a, a wonderful and rich storehouse of traditions that we can draw upon that was something that came out of the engagement with Laura Hajo and Sherman the other day it, I guess it's being flagged by people like Tyson Junker Porter with his book Sand Talk and so on uh, where there are there are other resources that we can turn to and in addition, there is a new kind of yearning for alternatives, and and this yearning is is popping up in in people's own creative traditionalist expressions, in which they we're all kind of cherry picking the elements of our cultures that affirm us and and work for us, and this of course is not something that happens in a futures workshop or, or or whatever. But to me, it sits in the background of our of certainly of my futures consciousness as I'm working with people in my institutions or outside, and of course, and it's quite doable on Zoom. I mean, I do a lot of work on Zoom now, all over the place, and it's kind of like the stickiness of positive futures that are, that, are, that are emerging for me. I look at the bankruptcy of the present in many respects, but then it's in exactly the same space I, I'm forced to sort of take the words back and I look at the richness of the present and what it's offering. So there is this kind of incredible parallel universe that's happening here where we can fall into the dark into the shadows and 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 despair about you know the dark net or the internet or the way we are being monitored and and observed and and managed uh through the covid period with new surveillance technologies and so on and of course that's all real but at the same time the inner surveillance technologies of self-reflection certainly i'm seeing it in in the, the people that i'm working with I'm seeing that we're all developing. I'm using the word soulful because that's just the language that I, I, I that I would turn to, you know, and, and poetic and so on. But this language of alterity is there, and that means that something else is emerging. And I have, I trust it, but I certainly would not have the kind of arrogance to try and define it in any way at this stage of the game. Yeah. I mean, you are describing, of course, the classic dialectic of mm. play out of synthesis, sorry, antithesis and thesis. <laughs> yes. There isn't necessarily a new synthesis from that. It's been very interesting as I've been, you know, we're, we're like a hundred plus podcasts into the series now. I've had, mm. there's been an interesting deep relationship between how how we respond to loss. Mm. And there have been quite dialectic responses to it. I had Lydia Zwin, whose PhD work in Brazil is about the cultural 
what would I say that what arises from this from the certainty of death, mm-hmm. um, the culture and the richness and the worth of passing, yeah, and then you pivot dramatically to the you know the life extension people in the Foresight Institute that quite rightly are saying we can do something about this. We can actually remove many, many causes of suffering in the world. And yeah. as I sit here and do the interviews and of course and as I travel with the people, that the ideological differences in this central point yeah. of our permanence, impermanence, they are dramatically different. And to kind of work between them, it's hard It's probably impossible and probably not even useful to try and find accommodation. They almost have to sit and both be true. Yes. Uh, That to me is a very, very interesting proposition because uh, I think we we want to kind of return to sort of black and white securities. And the whole point about paradox, complexity, post-normal times, whichever language you want to draw on is the fact that multiple truths uh, coexist, multiple realities coexist. And I I think most futurists would recognise that and they also recognise that the the trick with our, I I guess, our trade is in a sense to privilege or raise out optimal, uh, more uh, life-affirming, culture-affirming truths (laughs) than, than those that sort of disable for me, that's certainly part of the deal, is is looking at the layered nature of reality and pulling out from it. That's why I talk about creative traditionalism, because to me, there are traditions that disable and traditions that enable. And, and that's part of privileging a, a, a way of approaching our past, uh, recognising the violences of colonialism or imperialism or capitalism or whatever it is, but also recognising the, the positive qualities of human culture that, that come uh, along with that, that have been uh, at the kind of ideological and sometimes, you know, quite abused dimensions of, uh, you know, quite violent systems. But to say, hey, there are these elements there that, of course, affirm all that is the best about us, and and yet to recognise that that best is is qualitatively different across you know geographies, spaces, times, genders, and and all the rest. One thing that I'm paying attention to, just because it is it's so apparent, is the gender. Mm. What's the term? Diamorphism of seemingly. Some of the younger generations, the mm. fact that people are, yeah, there's a fairly traditional, back to your creative traditionalism, the notion of gender yeah. has been a somewhat stable beast and all of a sudden it becomes completely unstable to many people who are simply mm. saying, why do I need to even identify with the gender? Yeah. I've been wondering, is it possible that the way gender is being handled, admittedly not by the widespread, but it's basically... It's growing. We can see it all around us if we pay attention to it. Is that possibly suggesting this kind of flexibility of we don't need to choose? Mm. The, the non-dialectic is becoming part of you know future consciousness in a sense, not futures consciousness, but just part of the the, the landscape that we are moving into. Identity isn't what it used to be. You could say certainly gender isn't, and I, I think. We are all experiencing a 
release of the binaries in gender, which of course have been extremely violent and and unproductive. And institutionalised. Of course, very much. So for me then, the questions of how to identify uh, become much more interesting because there's choice and there's also the openness of identity futures, where the futures, as I, I use that term intimate futures, and it's quite simply because I, I feel that everything that we do and enact as, as human beings uh, are all identity formations uh, that are being, we, we're experimenting with them now. We, we are able to play with them. Young people don't have to be, you know, macho guys or, you know, dainty uh, women and so on. It's it's quite quite different. I've seen it in my students, but not just that, in, in my um, my own family, you know, in, in my kids and my, uh, and, uh, you know, nieces and nephews and the, and all over the place it's happening and it's happening in a in a way that's rather for me it's rather beautiful because when i see people being released from entrenched you know almost dogmatic genders uh, the the world becomes much more colorful but also that we i think the creative potential of culture to respond to the binary uh, issues that we, we're facing and you know I'm thinking climate change or not climate change or you know uh, extinction versus you know sustainability or whatever it might be I think these are these are way too simple in terms of conceptual categories uh, and to negotiate this we need to be fluid and we need to reclaim some form of broader sense of our identity or belonging and and, and to take it on and and in ways that affirm that you know don't paralyze us and of course the gender flexibility is coming at a cost because a lot of those young people are suffering from anxiety and depression and so on mm. it's something that i witness very you know very regularly in, in my own interactions particularly with undergraduates at universities but you know then we we spread our wings and we we start flying around the world and, which is happening of course through zoom not not physically and you know we end up with incredible conversations around i guess a poetics of being that's that's something that comes up for me i'm mm. i've been following uh, people in brazil and in, in uh in sub-saharan africa and other places like that engaging and uh, of course in my old playgrounds of india and and particular and and all over the place the same sorts of elements are, are happening and of course there's there is reaction to it but the the, the reaction seems to be uh, located in places that are becoming increasingly vulnerable or brittle and of course that makes them even more reactive I guess so we need to understand the pain of loss and grief and that of course that will issue uh, a, Fourth, as as often violent outbursts, but at the same time there is something else happening, and I really am curious about that something else. You know, so for me, curiosity is one of the main drivers in my own thinking and work at the moment. I'm not trying to map or even analyze particularly. I put that part of my brain to uh, one side at the moment, and I'm definitely much more in a, a feeling, uh, open, empathic zone. I, I can't even put my finger on it, Peter, but that's the sort of space I'm inhabiting at the moment. I'm hearing when you talk about fluidity and and um, and movement and the liquid nature of binary categories or what we mm. think of as binary. I'm I'm hearing Zygmunt Bauman, mm. um, yeah. and I'm and I'm also conscious, and I think you are too, that 
what's coming, what's arising, what seems to be arising in the young especially, and I think in people (laughs) our age, is the emotional angst and psychological consequence of that. Yeah. If we believe these things are open, then as Zygmunt says, you are now responsible for your choices. (laughs) I'm coming to you for a bit of wisdom because you are a very wise man. At the same time, you're a fool and humble. Like Thank you. I'm a fool. Definitely. I, I like that. I relate to that much more. <laughs> In terms of how people find life anchors yeah. while at the same time exploring, I'd like you to just maybe just lean into that for a couple of minutes. Yeah. I think relationships and the relational is really key to that sense of life anchors one of the the way i've been teaching particularly the last couple of years has been very much dialogical a form of teaching of course peter that is totally your second nature right Mm. (laughs) so what i've been opening up is spaces where the people that i'm working with and this is let's say uh, we're reflecting about time and this is and it's the overtly it's about historical thinking for instance but it's basically it's more about cultural evolutionary processes in which the students just sit. So these people, many of them are, are vulnerable. Many of them have confessed within the first few weeks that they are, you know, being medicated for depression, anxiety, blah blah blah. A number of them are, are going through uh, actual. Uh, they, they're, they're, they've identified as trans and are on a whole range of. Uh, hormonal cocktails, uh, changing gender and so on, and they're struggling. But they're also finding uh, a sense of meaning in just being able to talk about the issues that um, arise in these so-called encounters. And I feed them interesting thought pieces and uh, I let them sit with them and play with them. So for me, that sense of openness that brings with it the sense of terror of course Mm. so that's like we're all in free fall but then we start patterning and we immediately as we start talking and telling the the stories pattern and what i'm seeing i'm just thinking about conversations i've had in the last couple of days is a group of young people talking and creating and riffing off one another creating really interesting thought lines so thinking is part of it, but the what is the interesting thing for me is noting how the emotive, the the it, it's more the relational stuff that's happening around the thinking. So it's like the fabric of community, and they will go, they leave the class reluctantly, and they stand outside still talking. Mm. And for me, there's there's more in that than just meets the eye. It's not just, oh, run a good class. It's actually that these people are actually integrating what, you know, you could say is learning that is utilitarian. They're they out to be teachers or whatever. They're there having to sort of get their, get their they've got a pass, you could say. Uh, but beyond that, there's, there's much more happening. And it's that much more that interests me and, and affirms also the process of, you know, open dialogical emerging I'm hearing a circling back to your original comments about when you were imagining yourself as a leader mm. and how people wish to be led. And I'm actually wondering whether that part of the response to people wanting certainty 
mm. is the rejection of that by simply saying you have to work it out. Mm. We all have to work it out, but the important thing is we work it out together. Yeah. Well, you reminded me of one of my first meetings I had when I was in this role of deputy head. You know, I, it was a, a meeting of program leaders and so on. So they're all leading, you know, one leads a program for social work, counselling, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I they'd been very, very functional meetings. And I walk in there and I say, okay, guys, I'm not interested in functional meetings. I find them boring and not particularly productive. What do you want to do with this meeting? And <laughs> there was this real uncomfortable silence. <laughs> And <laughs> uh, because you know, I uh, and but by the time you know, uh, you know, a few uh, meetings later, we had gone by. They were becoming really dynamic meetings. So the, uh, but so uh, again, this is about challenging the cultures of conformity. Mm. Often, you know, these people, well, they're all very busy people, so they're there out of duress almost. So then what are we going to get out of this that's going to actually be meaningful for your own shaping of the learning territories that you're, um, you're, you're actually got responsibility for? How do we respond to institutional needs but actually maintain the integrity of, you know, programs, particularly in the social sciences humanities, which are under a lot of pressure at the moment, of course? So that was, yeah, in a sense, what I I, I led by not leading. <laughs> so, okay, guys, yeah, let's do it together. Can institutions cope with those demands, or is the nature of is the conforming nature of institutions ultimately what makes them fail? I think. When we create a culture which you know, it takes time and effort and, and a great deal of presence, I have to say, and faith as well, I think we can create healthier spaces in which greater levels of resilience come about or emerge. Mm. So I do believe that there is merit or method in that madness. We are facing times when things do need to be done differently, and I think it's it's about showing up. It's about being present, and it's a, and it's also about defending the the logic of let's say dissent. The logic of you know we what was the title of the previous podcast? It was about disturber of the peace. Yeah, so it's a, it's about disturbing the peace. It's about not playing by the rules but recognizing that there are rules and recognizing that you know the institution needs certain products or outcomes and that those need to be provided because otherwise the institution is going to bite you i call it feed the dog you've got to feed the dog otherwise it's going to get really grumpy with you mm. and this of course is not futures in in any major sense of the word but it's creating futures spaces and those, to me, are rather interesting places to play in. So to create a future space is quite simply to allow divergence, diversity, and also not conform to the standard expectations. Just like we were talking about gender fluidity, well, I think identity fluidity, leadership fluidity, it's not that leadership doesn't exist. You go into bat. You you actually promote a set of values that you you wear on your sleeve. It's a form of pedagogy for me. Leadership is definitely pedagogic. It's about hey, this is the way we can do this better, and so you have to teach new skills sometimes. So there, that moment of uncomfortable silence. Actually, you I had to sit with the silence. I didn't. I, I was not going to be sucked into running in and filling that silence, that gap. Mm. 
because that's the that's the first thing we do is we panic and we think we have to fill a space and and to me that's ultimately going to counter be counterproductive because of course you're immediately accepting that well I tried that but it didn't work <laughs> no one stepped forward no one had any kind of interactive uh, response that was you know positive or optimal or whatever but you have to be patient and we have to nurture things and to me that's part again of this kind of intimate futures uh, for me is is about nurturing and knowing that resistance can take the it begins you know in in our own consciousnesses of course and then we just sort of promote it through as quite simply being and holding that space and you know for me that's part of, of my story is that learning to hold my own authority to be an authority without having to be an authority in a way that's generally uh, recognized as such lovely mm. on behalf of the community thanks for dipping back into the future pod pond again and uh, yeah. it's been great to talk again yeah thanks peter it's been a pleasure This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.